the jolt with Larry Flick on Sirius XM OutQ. Okay, so the first thing you notice about Ed Burns when he walks into the room is that he still has Terry Muldoon hair. <laughs> you do, don't you? That looks. It's looking I do. It's very the Muldoon Terry haircut. Muldoon. Yeah, yeah. You look, and but you're very tan. I'm very tan. I've had a nice summer uh, doing a lot of press, doing a lot of writing, but also uh, getting to hang out on the beach with the kids and relax good. a little bit. Yeah, congratulations! Very, Plus, that very Irish good. skin burns quickly. As you know. I know. Well, I'm not, I'm Italian. It burns pretty quickly too. But yeah, you're red. Yeah, looks good. Well, Ed Burns, our good friend, is back here on the Jolt. I'm Larry Flick, and he's got a brand new show that is uh, on TNT. You've seen it already. If you haven't, you're missing out, and you need to catch up. It's Tuesdays, and it's called Public Morals. Congratulations. Thank you very much. This is, wow. Actually, I, I watched, um, I've been watching, and I, uh, I keep thinking, he must have, this must, must have been your idea of going to the land of Oz. This is like your, this is your fantasy. Everything about this show looks like you did it with love and joy. Um, no, it's entirely accurate. I mean, this is 18 years in the making, not specifically this story, but wanting to tell um, two of the tales that kind of dovetail and, and overlap in the show. Uh, one is, you know, my dad's a retired New York City cop, my uncle, three of my first cousins, NYPD, two of my childhood buddies. I grew up in cop culture, and I always wanted to tell a story that took a look at what it was like to grow up in that environment. All right, So that's one part of the show. Um, another part of the show is uh, years ago, uh, my uncle um, gave me these photographs he found of his grandfather, so my great-grandfather, with him on the roof of his tenement in Hell's Kitchen with his champion pit bull, that he used to fight. And the pictures are crazy with him sort of cutting the ears of the dog and the dog wearing the muzzle and him and the dog standing proudly on the roof of the tenement. And I was just fascinated by like, well, who was this guy? You know, clearly he was a Hell's Kitchen thug. And after I saw those photographs, I became with obsessed with um, the Irish, my family's history in Hell's Kitchen, but the Irish history in Hell's Kitchen. And of course, a big part of that was uh, you know, I mean, it was it was crazy, and there were a lot of gangsters. So after that, I wrote four different Hell's Kitchen set gangster stories. A turn-of-the-century story, a Prohibition story, a 1980 story. Um, and in doing each one, I did a ton of research about not only the Irish and Hell's Kitchen, but New York City, Tammany Hall, Prohibition, um, and the cops. So... With those two things brewing, when it when I was approached by TNT, um, if I wanted to get into television, uh, I, I did not have an idea for a television show. But what I did have was, you know, uh, a number of unproduced screenplays. I mentioned the Hell's Kitchen gangster stories. I had also had what I considered my Irish American Godfather, a multi generational um, look at a cop family. That went from the late 50s to the late 70s. Um, and I wrote that script for DreamWorks and Steven Spielberg after Private Ryan, after Steven met my dad and my uncle on the set of that movie. We couldn't get that movie made. So you take all of that, 
that's kind of what gave birth to this story um, and and these 10 episodes. From a production standpoint, you know, once I moved into Manhattan from Long Island in 1990 and I had no money, all you would do, all I would do is I would just walk around the city. Um, my both my parents went to high school in Manhattan, so uh, and like I said, my dad worked in Manhattan as a cop. I was just obsessed with the city. I was obsessed with the old neighborhoods and yeah. the old buildings, and all of these things were just sort of um, ingredients that I poured into into this show. Um, where did your parents go to high school? Uh, my mom went to uh, St. Vincent's. I think it's called St. Vincent's Ferrer mm-hmm. on 66th and Lex, one block north of Donahue's Steakhouse, which is yeah. where my family spent every St. Patrick's Day uh, all through my childhood because we place. were friends with the Donahue's. Um, and my father went to St. Anne's, which was up on the Upper East Side, yeah. which then became Archbishop Malloy out in Queens. Very interesting. So. Being a native New Yorker, I'm from the Bronx. Oh, so my mom's from the South Bronx. Where, where in the South Bronx? Uh, 161st in Sherman, right near, Holy off the concourse smokes. near Yankee Stadium, yeah. For a while, we lived on 183rd and Jerome, and then we moved to Pelham Parkway, oh, okay. which is where my parents still are, but huh. they, uh, they're near uh, St. Lucie's Church All right. by Allerton. Um, yeah, and- my mom's still, her Catholic grammar school, uh, she still goes to the reunions. I think they do a reunion every five years. Um, wow. Yeah. So I'm always interested because in 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 little bits like that because that kind of information tells me a lot about why it looks so real as a as a native New Yorker. Um, you and I can see when it's real, yeah. And so I'm always curious to know what your pressure points are. And I don't think I well after all the chats we've had, I don't think I ever knew that your parents went to school in the city, and those are both really good schools. And I've been to Donahue's. Yeah. Well, and I grew up, you know, you you would hear these great stories about what it was like um, to grow up in Manhattan. Because my family originally, my dad grew up in Astoria, but uh, my uncle and his, uh, my dad's parents were Hell's Kitchen. So we always heard stories about what it was like uh, to grow up in New York City, more specifically Manhattan at that time. Um, you know, one of the things they talked about as it relates to the show was the idea that, um, you know, the cops were guys who grew up in the neighborhood, whether it was, you know, we have a, you'll see in later episodes, Michael Rappaport plays a German guy from Yorkville. Uh, you know, the, 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 the guys who grew up in Hell's Kitchen, you know, there were two paths to take, a civil servant or maybe end up on the other side of the law. And they would say, you know, it was wild is on a Saturday night, you'd be at the local gin mill on the corner. And you'd be there with all the guys you went to high school with, all the guys you grew up with. But half of them were now cops and half of them were doing whatever they were doing. And it was sort of like all bets were off, but come Monday morning, we're going to be at odds uh, going at it. And I was just fascinated by the notion of that. Yeah. it's uh, Watching the show, um, being Italian and being um, what they – what they uh, call, uh, you know, in, in New York, they kind of designate. My family's Arthur Avenue Italian. Oh, okay, yeah. And and it's very much the same kind of culture mm. where you were either um, on the right or the wrong side of the law, yeah. and you were either um, very, very deep into family or you were setting the table for the family. That's really how it was, it was kind of being a young Italian kid in the Bronx. So watching Public Morals, 
even though it's not my culture because Irish is very different than Italian, um, the intensity of the honor and the intensity of pride in who you are as a man or a woman, very, very relatable. And, um, but also the, the you know sense of family, Catholicism, yeah, neighborhood. Very much yeah, Catholicism, yeah. you know. The greatest regret of my parents' life is that I went to Our Lady of Mount Carmel School for one semester and couldn't cut it because it was just too. My great, my my dad's regret, I left uh, Chaminade on Long Island, an all-boys Catholic high school after uh, two years. <laughs> yeah, the <laughs> first time I heard Brother Christopher beat the shit out of someone in the hall, I was like, I, uh, I, I'm done. I'm done. Get yeah. me out of here. Um but so all of this, all of this makes for a show that has amazing texture, um, and it fills every frame of. You know, this is the kind of show y'all you need to watch on a big television screen because it's just you can I, you your eyes travel all around. Um, how do you make sure that the words and the performances? are as beautiful as the texture and the framework because that's tricky. Balancing, getting one right mm. is really hard. And you're doing television. Yeah, yeah. Which is, you know, more money than an indie movie, but not as it's much not money. It's not feature film money, yeah. Right. Um, well, you know, the performances, that's sort of the easiest part in that I was lucky that TNT... Uh, agreed that this show had to be made in New York City. Um, so when you're making a show in New York, we have access to the greatest actors on the planet. You know, we can go and get Brian Dennehy to come in to play the Irish Don Corleone. Incredible. You can get Tim Hutton to come in and play, a, you know, a smaller supporting part. The um, best acting I've seen from Timothy uh, Hutton in decades. And wait till you see, we shot a scene, a, a big flashback scene, um, that we're going to use in season two. That is a, a seven-minute scene where he just crushes it. Um, and he looks so different. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. just incredible. You know, you get Michael Rappaport. You get Kevin Corrigan. But aside from those names that everyone knows and those faces that people have become familiar with, there are all these other incredible New York City born and bred actors who are here doing off-Broadway uh, or doing Broadway, that we're able to sort of tap into that great resource and bring into our show. Kid like uh, Keith Nobbs, who plays Duffy. Um, he's from Queens. Aaron Dean Eisenberg, Long Island kid. Phenomenal actor. Uh, Brian Wiles uh, went to Regis, local kid. Patrick Murney. We have three actresses. Um, uh, all we, we call them the Jersey Girls. Katrina Bowden, Elizabeth Masucci, and uh, Michelle Hicks, who, you know, one of the things we wanted to do with the show was where we could, I wanted authentic New York accents. You know, I mean, you, somebody can put on an accent, but you can't get the cadence. You can't get the delivery it's right. It's also really offensive. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Because yeah, if it's yeah. wrong, it, it's really wrong. It's really wrong. And usually it's really wrong. It's usually really wrong. Um, so we joked around with the actresses. You know, they, they all for years have been trying to get rid of their accents. Uh, and then the on this show, I said, come on, bring those accents out. I want them back. First thing you do is you learn how to not say turlet, like we used to say in my neighborhood. Yeah, uh, Elizabeth Masucci is particularly good in yeah. the show. Yeah, uh, just a, a total scene stealer. 
Um, and it's funny how we found her. You know, um, someone sent us a reel of an actor to look at uh, for the one of the leads in the show. Um, and it was a scene from a film that Elizabeth was in. And Elizabeth had a small part in that scene. And we look at this actor's reel, and the actor was very good, but we I wasn't familiar with Liz's work. And uh, my producing partner, Aaron Lubin, and I saw her and said, oh, my God, this kid is great. Like, wh- who is she? Casting director, tracked her down, brought her into audition. First audition, she had the part. Wow. Yeah. So you have all these pieces. Do the words just sort of flow because all these pieces are in place first? Uh, no. You know, I mean, uh, for me... Um, I, I'm I'm a little bit of a student of language, and I'm talking about accents. I know delivery. Um, I am constantly, especially when I'm with the old timers. You know, when I'm with my dad and his friends, and they turn a phrase, or they have a particular way of saying something, or uh, the kind of phrases and words like "dumkaf" that you don't hear people use anymore. <laughs> I pull out my phone, and I'm a re- immediately putting that stuff down, and. I have, you know, a little Bible of, um, you know, those types of phrases and words that I know I want to incorporate into the dialogue. At a certain point, you know, after you're through writing the second or third script, they then just become part of your vernacular, you know, and I find myself now speaking as if I'm a cop in the early 1960s, driving my wife crazy. That's awesome. Um, The other thing is, in just doing all the research for the show, a lot of what I did was, you know, poured over these like out of print memoirs from a, you know, police commissioner from the 30s or a gangster from the 40s or, um, you know, cops who were cops in the 50s and 60s. And in that, there are uh, the way they spoke, um, especially the cop lingo. Um, I would pull pull that and say, OK, I got to remember, like, that's how, you know, they, they don't call someone a dirtbag. They call him a scale. Um, and, and things like that. The other thing is, you know, I had my dad, my dad, um, helped me out and was a dialogue consultant on it, especially for just what, how cops spoke to one another, um, in the car, on the street, in the office, what the dynamic would have been like with the new cop, Jimmy Shea, when he shows up and what was the dynamic like with the, the captain, the, the Robert Neffert character. And how that conversation would be different when he steps into uh, Ruben Santiago's office, the lieutenant. And then how might it be different when the Italian cop Lutucci takes him out? So just those different shades or grades of, and in that case, it's all sort of abuse, but how that abuse uh, might go. So that was very valuable to have. Fascinating. Mr. Ed Burns joining us on The Jolt. I'm Larry Flick talking about his new TNT show, Public Morals. Uh, currently airing Tuesdays. Um, which came first for you? I've never asked you this, I don't think. Your love of history or your love of pictures? Because I'm listening to you talk, and I'm thinking as you're going through the the research, the minutia that you seem to energetically dive yourself into, yeah. you could be... A historian, you could be a teacher, you could be uh, a writer. When did pictures, or did pictures come first? It's you know, probably at about the same time. And I'm I'm trying to think. Um, 
when it started. I mean, it probably, uh, I can remember my, my first apartment in New York, uh, I lived on Bank Street in the West Village. Um, and Oh, you were one of the cool guys then. Uh, no, I- Back I, in the day, that was a- That, that was, was like a great neighborhood, yeah. That was like right near, there was a, great clubs down there. I was uh, right on Bank in Washington. The bar uh, is still there, Automatic Slims, and I was a uh-huh. block. Uh, from the White Horse, so of course I romanticized, you know, like going to the White Horse at night, drinking alone at the bar, and doing the Dylan Thomas thing. Yeah. Um, but I can remember when I moved there, I, I said before I had no money, you'd walk around the neighborhood, and I just became obsessed with, um, you know, some of these old buildings and the history of the neighborhood. So I got my hands on a book about the history of Greenwich Village, and in that, two things happened. There were these incredible old photographs, and these great old historical stories. Um, and that's really when it started for me. Um, so on this show, you know, I had not only these great old um, stories that I knew I wanted to somehow work into my series. You know, for example, there's a book called Island of Vice, which is about Teddy Roosevelt's time as the police commissioner. And it's filled with these great stories about sort of institutionalized police uh, and, and political corruption. Tammany Hall and um, uh, Teddy Roosevelt wanted to put an end to, I uh, want to crack down on drinking on Sundays. Um, and he wanted all the bars closed and how he dealt with that. And um, uh, prostitution and brothels in the Tenderloin, which is now Midtown, um, and how they wanted to try to put an end to that. And there was a police captain who, uh, it's been a while since I read it, but I, my memory was he, he was having an affair with a madam. So absolutely would always tip off the madam when the cops were going to raid that whorehouse. And I became fascinated with that. And I was like, all right, I'm going to work. Even though that's 1880s and my story is 1960s, I'm going to work that into my story. And you'll see our police captain has a relationship with a madam who runs a whorehouse in Manhattan. Um, so there were those types of influences. Then um, I've always been obsessed with, you know, anytime I could get my hands on uh, photography of old New York, where whether it was um, Frank or Bruce Davidson, and you know, so you look back in time, and also my my parents' photographs of their childhood. Um, so what we would do with my production designer and my costume designer, Cat Thomas and Dina Goldman, we'd go through all these old photographs. I'd say, "Oh my God, look at the detail there on that stoop. We have to find that stoop, that kind of old wooden door, those wrought iron gates." And we would walk around the city, all of us, with our phones, and just take pictures. And, and you know, Dina would send me a picture. Eddie, you're not going to believe the old, the, the, this old restaurant I found with this old signage, or an old stoop, or an old subway entrance. We've got to use this. And then I would get that, and then I would rewrite a scene in order to work in a location that we had fallen in love with. Um, and I would say my favorite days on set, as much as, and I'll talk about some of the great sets we built and, and the inspiration for those, but my days that were the most fun were we went, um, like there's a street in the West Village on Jane Street between Greenwich uh, Avenue and West 4th, where the Corner Bistro is, yep, down to well. where Benny Burritos is. Yep. That block, um, we found nine separate locations on that block alone. Wow. Uh, the Corner Bistro, a funeral home, um, uh, an old social club. A townhouse to serve as a Hell's Kitchen townhouse for Brian Dennehy's character. Uh, an old tenement that hadn't been power washed and hadn't been changed. So the, the thing I was going to say was the greatest thrills. You show up on set in the morning, and all of a sudden, there's that block that for the most part has remained unchanged. Um, 
and then you you show up and we've taken over the block and there are 50 period cars and not just you know early 60s brand new cars like you see a lot of times in movies like we said hey there were cars on the on the road then people didn't you know lease new cars every three years we have to have cars from the early 50s you have to have the junkers that that guy is going to drive until it dies so we had that and then you have all the extras dressed in their period clothes and hair and you would literally i'd get out of the van and step back in time and that was the greatest thrill making the show wow i could just listen to you talk about scouting the show for hours <laughs> ed burns joining us here on the jolt um you were so in clearly in love with your city, your family, your heritage, um, and you 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 have in various ways through your career documented portions of it, whether it be the youth uh, that we got in Brothers McMullen or the the lineage in Public Morals, um, and all the points in between. Um, you're your end point of pride is being a great filmmaker or telling the story of your people because you are telling a very there's a very specific lineage even when you deviate or when you kind of try to fool people into thinking you're deviating you're not yeah i would say uh, yeah, you know, I mean, Scorsese has the great quote about, you know, the goal of a filmmaker is to make your obsessions become the audience's obsessions. Um, so that's definitely at work. And you know, I'm I'm obsessed with um, probably most, like, I'm obsessed with, you mentioned my family, but I'm kind of obsessed with my family's place in New York City history. And not that my family moved the needle at all in New York, but but it's representative of an experience a lot of people had. Classic New York. I mean, that's it. You know, I mean, my my mom's parents, you know, came over from Ireland. And, like, that is, you know, I'm, I'm figuring out how do I, you know, I kind of touched on some of the, on my dad's side of the story. Now I'm trying to work in, in season two, my mom's uh, backstory. And, you know, her father, who was a sand hog, helped build the Lincoln and Holland Tunnel. So... You know, so I, you, you hear, I guess when you grow up in a house where people are always telling stories um, about their experiences and their history and their families, and that's my big extended family, uh, if you're a kid like me, you're fascinated by those and you're, you know, like that then becomes part of your oral history. And I've had the luck, uh, the benefit of not just being able to tell the stories in the bar on a Friday night, but being able to turn those into movies and now a TV show. So I'd say that my greatest point of pride is, you know, I I, I come from a family of, uh, you know, uh, pretty good storytellers. And I've just been able to start to tell my stories in a different way. You know, you, uh, in many ways, from my point of view, especially after our conversation today, must make your dad so proud because you are making sure that everyone knows what they were all about. And most people don't get to have their story told. So I just think, God, that must be very prideful. Very cool. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, you know, my, it's funny. My my brother writes for Blue Bloods. Um, and my dad is the one that pushed both of us into writing. Um, and uh, even though he was a cop, uh, you know, he went back to school 
in his 30s and got his BA from St. John's and his master's from NYU. And after that, it was like, you are not joining the cops. Yeah. Like, you're going to get educated and, you know, you guys like to write. Go be writers. And the kind of interesting thing is here, you know, whatever it is, X amount of years later, uh, we're both kind of earning our living off of the NYPD. Isn't that funny? <laughs> in a very different way. Very um, funny. And, of course, you know, the old man uh, gets a great kick out of that. I'm sure he does. Ed Burns, it's always a pleasure, man. Uh, the show is called Public Morals. It's on TNT Tuesdays. It's must-see viewing to be continued. Can I add one thing? Yes. Uh, it's all The first four episodes are also available on demand. So if you wanted to binge watch almost the first half, you can get it on your on demand or on iTunes or at TNTdrama.com. Don't miss it, y'all. Stick around. There's more to come. Thank you.